0: If you are here two weeks ago, you heard a story a little bit about my sabbatical. And this is part two of that. Um, just People have asked me since then, what's one of the major lessons that you learn when you're on your three-month sabbatical? And uh, man, I have a whole notebook filled with insights that I felt like I learned. But most of it wasn't head knowledge. It was more experiential. That was the life-changing stuff. There weren't revolutionary new concepts that I learned. Some... And I'll share some, but uh, mostly experiential, which made all the difference in the world. So in the next weeks, I'm going to share some of these truths that I experienced and learned, especially as they related to the story of Elijah. I could identify with Elijah in some ways. Elijah was called by God uh, to prophesy to God's people, Israel, uh, during a time of national corruption. Um, and he was called to preach a message of judgment and repentance because of their disobedience with the anticipation that they would repent and return to the living God. But how did God choose Elijah and what led up to that? Here's the context. If you rewind 100 years, uh, you, you learn about King David. And upon his death, about a, maybe 100 years later, uh, David's son, King Solomon inherited the throne of Israel, who started off really strong as a man of wisdom. He prayed for wisdom, and God blessed him, and he was leading this strong and prosperous nation of Israel, just like David did in this united kingdom, the glory days. But then, during the course of his reign, about halfway through, he began to act foolishly, even though he was a man of wisdom. And it led to the decline of the nation of Israel. Solomon allowed idolatry to invade the nation by marrying all of these foreign women and making all these alignments and all these agreements with kings of other countries. And so he married wives from Moab and Ammon, the Ammonite woman, and Edomite and Zidonian and Egyptian women. And he had this harem of all these wives suggesting these alliances, which was a practice forbidden in God's law, in the Mosaic law. Furthermore, Solomon would levy high taxes and labor constrictions against people and withheld pay from them, so like a form of slavery in a sense, because he wanted to pursue his own selfish extravagances, because he was King Solomon, And under his leadership, the nation Israel consistently became like all the other nations. After Solomon's death, his son Rehoboam succeeded him as king. And Rehoboam was also raised like Solomon in extreme prosperity and luxury. And uh, and so rather than cut back on this heavy taxation as he was instructed and counseled by the elders in Israel... He blew them off and he said, no, we're going to raise taxes and we're going to increase the labor here, sort of like the Egyptian pharaoh in a sense. And as a result, there was a revolt in the land as led by a man named Jeroboam. There's Rehoboam and Jeroboam. This Jeroboam protested against the high taxes. And so he was successful in leading the 10 northern tribes of this United Kingdom out of 12 tribes, he led 10 of the northern tribes to secede from the kingdom. Uh, the two southern tribes would have been the capital of Jerusalem, Judah, and Benjamin. And then there were the 10 northern tribes that just split like a, like a civil war. And It wasn't a war yet, but they just split. Um, and so there were 10 nations in the north, two in the south. The 10 in the north were led by Jeroboam. And I remember that because Israel and Jeroboam, uh, this is how my mind works. And then there's Rehoboam and Judah in the south. Judah in the south, Israel in the north. And so you take Jeroboam and you'd think he would go with Ju- Judah, the two J's, but they're opposite, you know? Jeroboam is over Israel, Rehoboam is over Judah. That's how I remember that. So there you go. You're dismissed. Okay. But Jeroboam, though, he was equally as self-centered as Rehoboam. And against God's will, he established two places of worship, which was, again, against God's law, because the worship place was Jerusalem. And so he set up these two places in the north, Bethel and Dan. And the ultimate goal was to prevent his people from returning and migrating down south again to Jerusalem. Keep them separated from Jerusalem, because I want to be in control of these ten nations, so it was, very, it was very selfish of him to do that, self-centered. He was fearful that they might reunite again. So in these new, two new worship centers, uh, Jeroboam would construct golden calves to be worshipped, all the while encouraging the people to worship the God of Israel, Yahweh. It's, it's called syncretism. It's a God-plus theology. Yeah, you can worship God, but then there's all these other things that can bring comfort to you as well. Well, that would have been these golden calves, which would then eventually pave the way for full-blown Baal worship in Israel under the seventh king some 58 years after the death of Solomon. His name was Ahab, who married a foreign woman named Jezebel. Jezebel. And this was during Elijah's time. In 1 Kings 16, we read, Ahab, son of Omri, the seventh king of Israel, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. He not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, but he also married Jezebel, daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and began to serve Baal and worship him. Now this Jezebel was a princess from the pagan nation of Tyre who married King Ahab of Israel. And she would be the one in control. She was the one responsible for introducing full-blown Baal worship in Israel. Baal meaning lord or master or owner. And she wasn't content to have Baal and Yahweh. She said, let's eliminate these prophets of Yahweh. Let's kill the prophets of God and just uh, have prophets of Baal and Asherah. Um, So Baal worship uh, was um, introduced. Baal was a fertility god who was also um, given uh, power over the weather and the storms and the rain. Therefore, he was the god over good crops as well. That's what this religion uh, purported. Uh, The religion of Baal then... um, promoted sexual freedom because they worshipped in these shrines to Baal with male prostitutes. Um, and so you could have your way with these male prostitutes. And then they also offered human sacrifice to Baal, including the sacrifice of children and babies. Sounds kind of familiar, doesn't it? Sexual immorality and the sacrifice of children. Sounds a little bit like our culture. So we come to the prophet Elijah who then appeared essentially out of nowhere chosen by God to preach a message of judgment and repentance to King Ahab and to the nation of Israel. In verse seven, chapter 17 we read Now Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe and Gilead said to Ahab, king of Israel As the Lord the God of Israel lives whom I serve there will be neither dew Nor reign in the next few years except at my word. Now, how did Elijah get the gall to preach such a strong message like this? By what authority? Who does he think he is? Well, his authority came from the living God and from his word. You see, Elijah's Bible was the law in the Old Testament, the law of Moses. So we read in the law of Moses in Deuteronomy 11 that God promised his chosen people Israel blessing for the obedient and curses for the disobedient, which included the shutting up of the heavens with no rain and no production. And so Elijah knew very well that Israel had been disobedient, and so he could with confidence prophesy this message of disobedience and judgment. There will be no rain, Which was ironic because Baal was the rain god. He was supposedly in charge of the rain and the storms. But Elijah said, hey, I worship a god who's going to kind of humiliate your god here. He's going to shut the heavens up of rain. And that's what happened. But then God instructed Elijah to do something which would make no sense to Elijah, I can imagine. In verse 2, the word of the Lord came to Elijah Leave here, turn eastward, and hide in the Kareth ravine east of the Jordan. Elijah must have thought, go and hide? What Did I hear you right, God? What? I'm to preach. I'm a prophet. I'm to lead. Not hide. It would be some, make so much more sense and be more productive, God, if you'd only grant me favor in the eyes of Israel and King Ahab. And then after maybe two or three weeks, maybe then uh, after the drought, then you can uh, I will pronounce that rain will open up. The heavens will open up and it will rain again and then people will be wowed and, and then you'll be glorified, God. And then you can anoint my words, open their ears and restore the nation back yourself. That would be just dandy. But God said, no, Elijah, go and hide by the brook in the Kareth ravine. But God, this brook is so remote, it's so isolated, it's so unknown, it's a secret place. What will I do there? I'll be by myself, I'll be lonely. Hey, I'm an extrovert, God. You created me, you should know. I'm a prophet, I have a message to share. Well, I had similar questions before my sabbat- during my sabbatical. But before my sabbatical, I was preparing to preach on Easter Sunday and I was excited. God had given me a message. I was studying for two weeks from, you know, which would have been Easter. But without any foreknowledge or, or uh, forethought, I hit a wall. The wall was an emotional wall. It was a spiritual wall. It was even a physical and medical wall. And it became clear to me that I needed a sabbatical. Like overnight, I woke up thinking, okay, boom, I'm gone. And I can't tell you what exactly, exactly happened to lead to such exhaustion. surprised me more than anyone, I think. Was it, though, because of my lack of faith? Was I in this condition because I had misplaced priorities and God wanted to get my attention, discipline me? Was it because I was neglecting my spiritual disciplines and I was in a spiritual weakness and apathy lukewarmness complacency was i experiencing the after effects of having covid and was this a long term thing i was experiencing or was it just the buildup of all these external covid pressures that we'd all undergone i didn't know but i did know that god allowed it to happen to me and he led me to a place of quiet desperation and solitude so i could identify with elijah in this way so what purposes did God lead Elijah into solitude? I asked myself as I read the story, God perhaps are some of the same purposes happening in my life. Well, um, first, God knew that Elijah needed some rest, and apparently he knew that I needed rest too. It would have been an all-time spiritual low for the nation of Israel under the leadership of King Ahab and Jezebel and Elijah would have felt burdened because of all the opposition that he had experienced and the idolatry and the corruption, the cold hearts, and the, uh, all the confrontation he must have been feeling and disequilibrium and everything going on was like, this is nothing, uh, nothing that would benefit God. You're all walking in the opposite direction. Well, I, I can't say that. I wasn't thinking that, and, and but we were all burdened by a lot of different things during Covid and what followed, and even now in our culture and even in our community, there's a division and there's conflict and there's anger. Um, I mean, will the gas gasoline prices go up or will they come down this week? Will I have enough to travel or not? Will there be enough workers to open the restaurant or will I go and say I'll drive through only? Will the stock market crash or is it going to rise? What will my investments do? What will happen after the midterm elections? How will that affect us? Uh, Will there be another pandemic? and will we have to shut down like we did? And if so, then who can prevent a civil war from happening in our country? And so all these thoughts, plus not even considering the personal um, things that were happening in my family, and my uh, extended family, and, um, or if we experience illness. But God knew that Elijah also needed rest. A few months ago, Pastor Jeremy preached an important sermon series on rest, even while I was resting. And it's not surprising that God would command his people to rest. He said, every seven days, you are to take a Sabbath. After all, God rested on the seventh day of creation. How much more should we rest? Then God instituted seven annual festivals to be celebrated by his people. Seven of them. Two of these annual festivals were to be celebrated for seven days. Of no work, just celebration. This was commanded of God in the Old Testament. Then, after seven years of these festivals, Israel was commanded to allow the land to rest for an entire year. It was called the Sabbath year. Allow it to rest so that it could be more productive. And then finally, every seventh seven-year cycle, after 49 years, they were to celebrate the entire year of Jubilee on this 50th year where people would be set free from their indebtedness. Uh, Prisoners would be set free. Slaves would be set free. People's property would be returned to them, and everyone would celebrate on this 50th year. So would Israel continue to observe these commands of God? And the simple answer is no. Therefore, they reaped the consequences and they were eventually expelled from the promised land that they had inherited. Are we even mindful to celebrate one day a week and set it aside for God? And we don't need to be legalistic and say you can't go... To Walmart or what? But do we do that? Do we worship God on the Sabbath? Well, a regular attender, according to Barna study, uh, in a church, a committed regular attender is 1.7 days a month, and that's the regular attender. It's just not the semi-regular attender. Um, what did Elijah do down by the brook then? When God led him to this place of solitude, did he take classes? Did he study? Did he work on, what did he do? No. He just waited on the Lord and waited for his next assignment. What now, God? Until then, God would provide for Elijah in some natural ways. He got plenty of rest. He caught up on his sleep. He was able to hydrate himself from the brook until it dried up. And then super, he, he cared for him in supernatural ways. Every morning and every night, he would send ravens carrying bread and meat would land before Elijah, and he had his daily sustenance in a supernatural way. Again, it had been nine years since I'd taken my sabbatical, and I had been inconsistent about utilizing my days off, my vacation days, and God knew what I needed. He knew that I needed a season of rest. Jesus said it this way, Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you'll find rest in your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I read through the book of Psalms during my sabbatical, among other things, and Psalm 23, which we all know, the 23rd Psalm, you know, the Lord is my shepherd. The one phrase says, he leads me beside still waters, he refreshes my soul, and he guides me along right paths for his righteousness. And I'm thinking, yeah, Lord, get me out of this funk I'm in and lead me in right paths. And God said, hey, don't separate verse 3 from verse 4 here, like I always had. What's the very next, next verse? Verse he says, even though you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you need not fear evil. See, I'd separated the right paths for his name's sake with the valleys of the shadow of death. Well, apparently, the right path for God's glory and his name's sake was to be in the dark valley for me for a season. That's exactly where he led me, he allowed it. Elijah may have been confused. Why now, God? Why a remote, isolated brook? Well, I was confused as well. I spent the first half of my sabbatical not simply resting because, in a sense, I was unable to rest. I was an emotional mess. It was painful. It was scary. It was lonely and confusing. And, in fact, it was hopeless at times. But the Lord kept me into that dark valley despite my many cries out he kept me right there and ultimately as I look back I know that that was rest it is mandatory that we find our rest and strength in the Lord whether we're in a dark deep valley or whether we're on a mountaintop or whether we're walking through the normal days and plains of life we need to find our rest in him we can't do it alone that's what Elijah learned. That's what I learned. Second, Elijah needed to hear from God. There would have been a multitude of competing voices vying for Elijah's attention and for Israel's attention, especially under these new rules of Baal worship and customs and corruption. In the same way, we have all these voices screaming at us with 24 news, 24-hour news cycles. You know, it used to be in the day, 6 o'clock news, right? Turn it on and hear it all. But now it's non-stop, everywhere, on the computer, on our phones, on the TVs, on streaming, everywhere. And then we have the cell phones, we have FaceTime, we have podcasts. Everything is screaming for our attention to be noticed. And it's difficult in our noisy world to hear the still, small voice of God. But when we find ourselves in these seasons of brokenness and isolation and solitude, then we have a great opportunity to tune all those voices out. Even if it's a forced opportunity, tune them out and then tune in the voice of God. Jeremiah 33, God says, Call to me and I will answer you, and I will tell you great and unsearchable things you do not know. Maybe you heard this illustration that Chuck Swindoll shared in in the day. He said there was this um, Native American Indian who lived on a reservation, he visited a friend in New York City. And they went downtown, they were walking downtown New York City, right in the center of Manhattan. This Indian seized his friend's arm and whispered, wait, do you hear the cricket? And his friend said, cricket? Come on, man, we're downtown New York City. He persisted, no, seriously, I really do. Oh man, that'd be impossible. You can't hear a cricket. Taxis going by, horns honking, people screaming at each other, brakes screeching, both Sides of the street filled with people, cash registers clanging away, subways roaring beneath us. You can't possibly hear a cricket. The Indian insisted and led his friend along slowly, and he stopped. The Indian walked down the end of the block, went across the street, looked around, cocked his head. He still heard it, but he couldn't find it. And so he crossed another street, and there in a large cement planter there was a tree growing. And he dug into the mulch, and underneath he found the cricket. See? He held it up high over his head. His friend walked across the street marveling. How in the world could you hear that cricket in the middle of downtown busy Manhattan? The Indian said, well, my ears are different from yours. It simply depends on what you're listening for. Here, let me show you. This guy reached into his pocket. He pulled out a handful of change, held it up, and he dropped it on the pavement below him. Every head within a block turned around and looked in the direction of the Indian. It all depends on what you're listening to and for. We don't have enough crickets in our heads, he went on. We don't listen for them. Perhaps like the crowded street full of people, we spend all of our lives searching for a handful of change, and we miss the real sound of life. And the only way that we find the real sound of life is to hear the invisible, inaudible voice of the living God, the Lord Jesus, through developing our capacity to hear and see him by spending time with him alone. God says, call to me and I will answer and I will tell you great and unsearchable things you do not know. So God led Elijah not only to rest but to hear this new word from God and then finally, God led Elijah to this place to prepare him for greater things i want to give you a warning when you're in a season of solitude and isolation when you're in a valley not only might you hear the voice of god and the holy spirit but you might also hear the voice of the enemy satan who'd like to lie to us satan is always the accused of the believers and he condemns us Sometimes we confuse, uh, confuse conviction of the Holy Spirit with the condemnation of Satan. They can feel the same way, pointing out our sin and our failure and whatnot. But conviction of the Holy Spirit always leads us to freedom, to life, to repentance, back into the arms of God. While condemnation makes us feel ashamed and, and makes us run away from others in God and isolate ourselves from God. And so we need to discern the difference. Um, And upon confession, though, uh, we will discover freedom. I I love watching this show every summer called Alone with 12 rugged individual uh, survivalists. And they're professionals and they come together. And every time they interview them at the beginning of the season, I think, this guy's going to win. No, this guy's going to win. No, this woman's going to win. They're just amazing and they're going to go the distance and be the sole survivor. So they're dropped off in this remote island somewhere, or but and they're spread out, and so they are essentially alone. Not essentially, they are completely alone. And they they video themselves, They're given video equipment to video themselves, so they don't have any people around them taking you know TV shots like this. Inevitably, though, after maybe. Three, four, five weeks, um, up to like 90 days, I think, would be one of the winners. 90 days of being completely isolated. Um, everyone ultimately taps out on their own accord, either because of starvation, because the winter months come, and, and there's no fishing, there's no animals, there's nothing, and they're starving, and they have to tap out. And so they press a button here, and helicopters come and take them back. And, uh, but inevitably, they will tap out, either because of physical reasons, but mostly because they realize during their alone time that a half a million dollars is not worth it compared to what they've left behind, namely their loved ones. And this is the sentiment of many of them. They say, things are going to be different now when I return home. I am a completely different person after being alone. I'm going to live differently. I'm going to love my, my family, so much more. I can't wait to be with them. And so they, get, they, they reject the half a million dollars in order to be back to what their priority should be. Well, God reveals our sin not to condemn us, but to lead us to freedom, to forgiveness, to fruitfulness. I memorized this verse during my sabbatical, Isaiah 30. This is what the sovereign Lord, the Holy One of Israel says, In repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength, but you would have none of it. Yet the Lord longs to be gracious to you. Therefore, he will rise up to show you compassion, for the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all who wait for him. In repentance and rest is your salvation. There's biblical precedence for God calling people into seasons of rest, to refine them and to prepare them, to strengthen them. Uh, Joseph in the Old Testament, he spent years in prison before God would raise him up to save a nation from starvation. Moses spent 40 years as a shepherd before God would raise him up to lead his nation to freedom out of Egypt. Abraham and Sarah spent 25 years waiting for God to fulfill their promise to grant them a child. Therefore fulfill his promise to them. God knew that Elijah needed to be refined in the Cherith ravine for an upcoming task. Do you know what Cherith means? In Cherith ravine, in Hebrew it means to cut. It means to divide, it means to prune. God needed to cut things out of Elijah's life during this season of solitude, to prepare him to do greater things for God's glory. What would Elijah need to have cut out of his life to prepare him? Could it have been his attitude of self-sufficiency? You know, I am God's lone prophet here. I speak and, and the rains stop. Could it be his pride, his arrogance, his independence, his impatience? Could it have been his insecurities? God knew that he needed some things cut out of his life in order to prepare him. Prepare him for what? Well, not long afterwards, God would raise him up to confront a rebellious nation during the showdown at Mount Carmel before 850 prophets, 400 from Asherah and 450 prophets of Baal, 1 Kings 18 when he confronted them, and you can read, we'll we'll talk about the story in the future, in order to return Israel back to God. And I want to thank God that he used this time in my life to cut some things out of my life, some self-sufficiency, some complacency, some insecurity, in order to prepare me for what he has for me in the future. I've been kind of walking in freedom now for a couple months, or a month and a half or so. Um, and I thank the Lord for delivering me from that darkness I was encountering and experiencing. But here two days ago, you know, I re- God got my attention again. He, he gave me a wake-up call, literally, because two nights ago, when I went to bed, I woke up after a minute, and I couldn't sleep the rest of the night again. I said, what's going on, Lord? My heart started to pound again. My mind started to race, and I couldn't sleep no matter what. I went in the living room and read. I journaled. I laid on the couch. I, I prayed, and I couldn't sleep until the morning. Then I got a couple hours of sleep. But it stirred some really scary emotions and memories in me again. God would use another long night to guide me back into his arms, by returning me to a spirit of repentance. You see, even in this month and a half's time of of freedom, I've kind of settled back into complacency and self-sufficiency. Hey, I can do this. I'm good now. I'm okay. And I'm not seeking after God like I was during my sabbatical. I'm not pressing into him. I don't have the same desperation and thirst and hunger for him because I'm okay now. I'm good. And God gave me a wake-up call. And I thank God for his discipline. He says in Hebrews 12, No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. And I thank God for his painful grace and mercy. My last thought is this. I call the the, um, covenant superintendent in Minnesota because I was looking for a spiritual director when Lynn and I would travel to Minnesota. I wanted to meet with a spiritual director. And, and this guy who I hadn't known listened to what I needed. He listened a little bit to my story. And this is how he responded to me on the phone. He said, hey, John, I got some, a word of wisdom for you. Don't be too quick to leave the brook. Don't be too quick to run away from the wilderness. Because God is doing a good work in you. It may not feel good, but God is doing a good work. Why does God sometimes lead us to a brook, to a season of solitude? Not to remain there indefinitely, but he does so that we might truly find our rest in him. Secondly, that we could hear from him his still small voice, because he wants to communicate to us desperately we just get so distracted and thirdly to prepare us for greater things for his kingdom and so God we thank you uh, for this church and we thank you for um, meeting us here this morning thank you Lord for the patience of my brothers and sisters in Christ listening online and here uh, to listen Um, I pray God that you meet, meet us whether we're in the valley right now or whether we're on the plains or on a mountaintop experience, Lord. Meet us right where we are, Lord, that we may hear from you, that we may find rest in you, and that, you, uh, and that we may be prepared to do greater things for your kingdom, I pray. Amen.